Yep. Good morning, church. Have you ever been somewhere that you felt like you shouldn't have been there? Or maybe you were okay with being there, but the people around you, they thought you should not be there. I've had one of those moments. I've had a lot of those moments, actually. But one of them happened with uh, that tall, uh, handsome man, Randy Frederick, that I was standing next to just a minute ago. We were flying to Honduras to go scout out a mission opportunity, and we were sitting there at the gate and waiting for them to call our name, and sure enough, they called out, Passenger Hinkle, Passenger Frederick, would you please come to the the desk? So we walked up, and they said, well, uh, we've overbooked coach, so we're going to need to upgrade you to first class. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha! Now, I don't know, that, that may not have been a big thing for Randy, but these legs are made for coach class. His legs are not made for coach class. So if you ever want to see Randy dance, uh, tell him he's upgrading to first class in a plane, and he got jiggy with it, uh, trust me. <laughs> and I got to do something I'd never done uh, before, and I still haven't done since. I keep trying to fly places with Randy in the hopes that they'll take pity on Randy and his companion and not put him back in coach with those legs. But I don't know if any of you are are Seinfeld fans. I'm a a Seinfeld fan. There's this one episode where they just uh, exaggerate the the difference between first class and coach class. And in coach, you know, there's bad smells and people are crowded and the food's bad and the service is rude. And in first class, there's blankets and warm cookies and warm bread and places to stretch out. And that's actually what it's like. Did you know that? I mean, for those of you who do first class, you've been holding out on the rest of the world. It was, they, that lady put a warm cookie in my lap on top of my blanket on the way to Honduras. It was, it was fantastic. However, as I looked around, I, I kind of got the sense that maybe everybody else had actually paid to be in first class. And uh, I started to look at how I was dressed as a youth minister getting to ready to go scout out a mission trip in a developing country. And then I looked at the people around me. Randy was not in his usual suit. He doesn't fly in that, in just case you wondered. And I started to think, you know, I, th- I think maybe the other folks in first class, they might think that there's a, there's a seating problem in first class. And maybe there's a guy, maybe a couple, but especially one guy that isn't really where he's supposed to be because that guy looks like he was made for coach class. And I think a lot of the times that's a place that sometimes in the church we navigate this weird, difficult, awkward space where we have a seating problem. And sometimes as the church, we end up in a place where we're kind of offering first class, or what I'm calling this morning, a VIP treatment to people based on how they look, or based on how much money they make, or based on what they can do for us. If that is a problem that we have, we're not the first to struggle with it. And so I'd ask you to open up your Bibles this morning to James chapter 2. The scriptures won't be uh, in the PowerPoint this morning but we're going to be in James 2 for the whole morning. So I'd ask you to turn over either on your phone or on a hard copy. 
And let's read about the church and their seating problem. James 2, verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Surely this doesn't apply to us, right? I, I think one of the reasons that I wanted to kind of sit with this passage for a moment because this really resonates with me. This resonates with my experience of church. It resonates with my experience of the Christian community. I'm thankful to be at a church here at Sycamore View in a local congregation where I honestly do believe that whatever you come in dressed as, it's not going to determine your seating. Can I get an amen on that? And that, that's the people that I hope we have been, and I hope that's the type of people we'll continue to be. But I still think we really struggle taking our cues on what's important from out there instead of determining what's important in here. And I think it's a, it's a matter or a question of utility. I think when we approach people, we are just trained in this world to look at somebody and immediately start thinking, how can that person benefit me? What does that person have that could make my life better? We're, we're just kind of trapped in this uh, cycle of hedonism where we are taught that we really just need to be striving for pleasure and joy and happiness. The, the Bible doesn't talk about that as something to strive for. It talks about happiness or joy being something that's a result of staying connected to Jesus, but it's not something you seek after. It's something that's a result of staying connected to Jesus. Amen? And yet, how many places that wear the label Christian do they determine their status, their importance in the community, their importance on the, the world stage by income or by looks or by how they dress? It can't happen in God's family. How do we resist becoming people who give the VIP seats to the wrong people? Let's keep reading. James 5, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you... You have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? James is talking about a very specific community and a very specific problem. We're not really privy to that. We, we just know that uh, poor people were being oppressed and they were being kept on the margins by those who had a lot of influence and a lot of affluence. We don't know the specifics, but we know James was a brother of Jesus. And even though at one point in time, James had gone out with his brothers and mother to get a hold of Jesus because he was not in his right mind, because he was welcoming and spending time with all kinds of crazy people, 
now James realized that as people of God, we are supposed to be the people that love people where they're at, and we accept them for who they are right there, and not separate based on social status. And so within this congregation, within this house church, and this is uh, if you look at James 1.1, 1, 1, this is sent to all the brothers, uh, all, the, all the 12 tribes scattered. So this is necessarily not, it's not necessarily just meant for one context, uh, but I think James experienced it primarily in his Jerusalem context. But all across the world, I think he probably had a suspicion or had heard word that in all the congregations of the saints, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting pushed aside. And that can't be because again, that's what the world says. That's how they judge instead of how we're supposed to judge. So how can we be self-aware enough to stop feeding the people and the values, the systems that keep the marginalized on the margins? These believers had lost that ability. So not only were they showing favoritism to people based on superficial characteristics, but they were actually giving preference to the people who were working against God and working against them. And then in James uh, 2.8, he writes, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So, He's kind of walked them through a couple things. You're not doing this well, he said, but this is what faithfulness looks like. Loving your neighbor as yourself. So what is it that you want this morning? If you're to love your neighbor as yourself, what, what is it that you want? How would you demonstrate love to yourself and therefore have kind of a framework to offer love to a neighbor? I don't think it's that complicated. I think I want people to, to say to me uh, that I am interesting. I think I want people to say that I'm valuable. I think I want people to say to me that I'm worth their time. I think I want people to say to me that I have something to add to this world. And, and I really want somebody to come up and say, I saved this seat for you. Isn't that what we want? Every person in this room. Don't we have this, this interior craving, not in some kind of narcissistic way where we're overly focused on ourselves, but don't all of us just, we want, when we interact with another, another person, we just want them to be in that moment. We want them to look us in the eye and to communicate to them, you matter and I care about what you're saying right now. And I won't go off on a tangent on cell phones and social media and lack of eye contact, uh, but I could, right? How many of our conversations don't communicate value and worth, wildness of time and presence because we can't get people's eyes off a screen and on our own? But that's a sermon for another time. So if we all want the same thing, think about our relationship with Jesus. Isn't that what he did for us? Isn't that what he does for us? He says, here's your VIP seat. Come on up to first class. You didn't pay for it. It's a free upgrade. 
But instead of people looking at you suspiciously, you belong because I'm bringing you up. So James calls us to love your neighbor as yourself. But instead, we find ways to deny what I call our neighborly obligation. Our neighborly obligation. We use titles and categories to make excuses and rationalize. We use titles and categories like, well, he's undocumented. So I have no neighborly obligation to that person. And you can fill in the blanks. That person is homeless. He's a felon. She's an adulterer. He's transgender. He's liberal. He's conservative. He's Muslim. And we use a tagline or a category where instead of saying we need to see this person as a person and hear their story and understand why they are where they are, not necessarily agree with where they are, but hear why they are the way they are, the world has said, those people don't count. And we don't have to hear those people. We do not have to communicate to those people that you're valuable and that you're interesting and that you have something to add. And just saying that out loud, you guys and I know that is not the way of Jesus. Amen? But that is how we operate. That is how we function, unfortunately. In Christendom, the body of Christ in the world, man, we're, we're being bludgeoned right now because we have a lot of people who profess Jesus with their lips and then they slice off a whole category of people and say, we do not have any not neighborly obligation to them because they've forfeited it somehow. And I would say, didn't I forfeit my neighborly obligation to Jesus when I sinned? But yet in my sin, he came and met me first and love moved first and he came to rescue me. So why do I get to stand back when Jesus came to me in my sin and say, you guys, I will love you, but only when you get your stuff together. Whew, that is, that is not the way Jesus wants our hearts to be. So we find ways to deny our, our neighborly obligation. And what we do is we excuse ourselves from seeing the person or having to hear their stories or from acknowledging the image of God in the other or from owning our own mistakes and failures so we can focus on theirs. And I'm guilty of this. Man, I'm preaching to myself, spending time with this passage the last few weeks, and especially this week. I've thought about 24 years in ministry. You know there's times that I have made a call, a value judgment, or a judgment based on utility, on someone's worthwhileness. How hard am I going to go after that family to recruit them to be a part of our church? Because if we get those guys, they're leaders, they're popular, they're going to bring some kids with them. That family can give. They can support a mission trip. And I'm not saying it's, it's for me, but it's still not seeing the person for who they are. It's seeing the person for what they have to offer, for what they have to give. And that's not okay. So the next couple verses, James writes, but if you show favoritism, you sin or are convicted by law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James basically says in a couple verses there, we're really all guilty because we've all broken the law. So we've got to start from a standpoint of mercy. And that's why what he says in the end of verse 13, that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's why it's so radical. Because in this posture, this attitude, love beats hate when mercy triumphs over judgment. And kindness beats anger. And patience beats hostility. And serving others beats serving self. And bridges beat walls. And friendship beats wealth. And eternal investment beats 401ks. And mercy triumphs over judgment because we received mercy first. And that's where we've got to start from. So instead of rushing to judgment and condemnation, James, in the tradition of Jesus, he's calling us to rush to hear, not to judge, but to understand where others are coming from. And it's amazing how understanding where someone is coming from changes the way you see them. Knowing someone's story changes everything. We've got a good friend uh, who is kind of part of me and my family's life, and he's a young adult. Uh, but mentally, he's probably mm, maybe eight or, eight or nine, maybe 10 years old. He's a full-grown man, though, and he has been the victim of abuse after abuse after abuse by his mother, by his father, by all family members, his brother. He's been in and out of prison some. And one time we brought him to church, and he's been here, and he'll, he'll probably come back. But the very first time he came, uh, he walked in, and he had a hat on. And a well-meaning, but I would say misguided, uh, brother in this church. He's not in this room. Um, He's not here anymore, so we're good. Uh, I can talk about this story. But he came up behind him. He said, hey, take your hat off. And I I was not there, and I did not see it, which is really a good thing. (laughs) Because I probably would have lost my relationship with uh, the Lord and that man right there in that moment. Because if he had known the obstacles that this guy had come through in life, and then to have the courage to walk into a place where he knew just a few people from his street, and the first thing he comes into contact with in his counters in the lobby is, something's not quite right about you. So before you get into the inner sanctum, you're going to have to change. And that, that's what was communicating. And I understand that for many people in this room, that wearing a hat in worship service is a sign of disrespect. And I, I also hear that story, and I am glad to have a discussion about that. But in that moment, that is not the moment for judgment. That's the moment for mercy. That's the moment to give the benefit of the doubt. That's the moment, if you want to have somebody change something about themselves before they walk in and be have the VIP uh, seating, first class seating in this place. You better find out their story before you start making vast judgments and just writing them off left or right. Because that's what Jesus did to us. And we're supposed to do what Jesus, to others, what Jesus did to us. Mr. Rogers, 
evidently carried a note in his wallet. And this is what it said, frankly, there isn't anyone you couldn't learn to love once you heard their story. I kind of agree with that, but I also know some stories, and I still have a really hard time loving some people. Anybody else in that room? Yeah. Anybody else in the room feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit on that? But you get the point. You get the point. You got to at least try to love people, and to love somebody is to hear their story. And so while I'm not kind of going after a particular social ailment in this moment of uh, our series called Taboo, of really difficult conversations that we, bring, we hope can bring healing and bring restoration. I, I think this is a helpful posture to approach whoever it is that we're talking about. It's a, it's a posture that says we rush to listen, to understand, and to love. We don't have to agree with, but we have to understand first. So I want to give this challenge to you. And if we have folks that are uh, uh, greeting people in prayer this morning, you can go ahead and start making your way to the edges of our uh, worship center this morning. Shepherds can come down front. But I just want to, I want to ask you just a couple questions that all are about the same thing. Brothers and sisters, think about the person or the people, that can be somebody you know or a group of people that you have the most trouble showing mercy to, who would you be least likely to save a seat for? Have you listened to their voices? Do you know why they act or think the way they act or think, or do you assume? Have you created space in your life to hear stories that are different from your own? I think somehow... God works in our hearts when, when we have a lesson like this and, and there's kind of a pretty straight to the point message from Scripture, do this, don't do this, right? Don't show favoritism, love your neighbor as yourself. And then when we start really applying it to our lives, there's one person or there's one group or there's one something that it's like, okay, God, anything but that. I just don't want to have to step, be forced into that. And I, I think that's where God calls us to. That is it. So if there's somebody that you have so much trouble loving in your life or a people that you have so much trouble understanding where they're coming from, I would just ask you this week to ask God to create some space in your life so you can understand and you can hear and maybe even learn to love them. And after hearing our stories we recognize that when Jesus heard ours, he knows we just can't get out of our own way. And so he came to save us. He loved us anyway. And he told his father to save the best seat for us. This is from the message. My dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-originated faith. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him and you say to the man in the suit, sit here, sir, this is the best seat in the house, and either ignore the street person or say, better sit here in the back row, haven't you segregated God's children 
and prove that you are judges who can't be trusted. Listen, dear friends, isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? You do well when you complete the royal rule of the scripture, love others as you love yourself. I pray that God will work on all of us to act for mercy over judgment. If you have a, a prayer need today that you would like to share, if you'd like to share it with the congregation, come right up to uh, uh, John French, one of our shepherds here on my right, and he'll share that with the congregation. But we have men and women all around the outside of this uh, holy room. It's a safe space. It's a holy space. If you just want to share something from your heart and be prayed over, prayed with this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.